It's time for security now. Steve Gibson, our security guru, is here. This is a show everybody has to watch. In fact, share it with your friends, your neighbors, your colleagues. Using PGP to protect your email. Steve talks about it next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 418, recorded August 21st, 2013, Considering PGP. Security Now is brought to you by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off on your new account, visit ProXPN.com slash twit and use the offer code SN20. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security, your privacy, your safety online with this man here, the splainer-in-chief, Stephen Gibson at GRC.com. <laughs> hey, Steve Arino. Hey, Leah. Great to be with you for show number one of year number nine. Wow. We begin our ninth year. Wow. Episode 418, and you've only missed one, and that was because we made you. Yeah, so. we're not going to do that again. That was not pretty. There was, a, there was an uprising among the neighbors. Well, you got to fight that with Lisa because I don't. Well, we'll I never we'll had the cojones to stop you, but she does. We'll figure out something to do. Oh, yeah, I got it. No questions. There was like, there will not be a podcast. Oh. Well, start getting ready. Here we are. We're almost at the end of August. Uh, you know, Christmas is just around the corner. That's usually when we try to take a week off. But, you know, if you if you want, we'll record ahead. We'll do something for you. You know what we're going to do? We're uh, here for our listeners, Leo. Ultimately, that they we're run, here for they rule you. Ruth. That's so, right. What yeah, we are going to sure do on uh, – see, this might impact you because your show would be on New Year's Day. <clears throat> And what we are going to do is is this thing I've wanted to do for some time, the 24 hours of New Year's. Because we have listeners all over the world, we're going to start. It'll be 4 a.m. our time, New Year's Eve. <laughs> and it's uh, New Year's Eve in a tiny little island in the Pacific. And what we're going to try to do, and I hope everybody listening will, will participate in this, is find somebody connect. in every time zone. Oh, neat. And get them on and say, okay, let's do the countdown. Neat. And we'll actually have more than 24 countdowns because there are some areas that are on the half hour and even the quarter hour time there zones. There are really? Yes, They're not time, all even no, hour? No, time zones being what wow. they are. There, There's some odd ones. So uh, if you're in a time zone, <laughs> what we're going to we're put up a page. We're going to put up a page. It'll be twit.tv slash NYE, and we'll ask people to sign up in every time zone. And I suspect there'll be a few like that very first one where nobody listens to us on this little island. But maybe we can find somebody in a lighthouse or something and talk. How about you get your rowboat girl to? Yeah, Roz can row out there. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, in fact, that's where she ended up when she did the Pacific was, I think, Tarawa, which is in the second time zone, the second, you know, the 5 a.m. time zone. And we'll go all the way through from 4 a.m. New Year's Eve to 4 a.m. New Year's Day. Which will be the uh, I, so I think you're Hawaii. Sit there on your ball for 24 hours. Yes, and we're going to have put in 
A full cycle. A full cycle every hour, uh, sometimes even more. We'll have a countdown and fireworks and confetti, and we're going to have guests. We're going to have music. It'll be a lot of fun. It's our New Year's Eve because we realize that people who listen to these shows really uh, don't have a social life. So we're going <laughs> to myself included, we're, we're going to give you a little so, a little party here at the uh, at the Twit Brick House for New Year's Eve. I think it'll be fun. But, I actually think, given given some of what we hear from our listeners, Leo, we are providing a social life. Oh yeah, for some of our for listeners. me. And, you know, if it weren't education. for this, I'd be living in my I'd be in my, in my underwear at home watching TV. So, uh, but that, but what I, <laughs> I know there's an image, huh? but uh, you, my friend, would be uh, six hours later, seven hours later on New Year's Day doing the show if we do it live. And I don't know if I'll be in any condition to do a show. Oh, no, so. no. I wasn't suggesting live. I, I assume that the... the we'll record the something special. Whitland would do yeah. a, a hiatus, but I'd come yeah. up with something for us to fill Christmas in week is our best of week. And so that Wednesday, which is Christmas Day... Oh, uh, I see. We do have a problem. Yeah. yeah. You see, we have the little problem here. Uh, okay, but we'll, we'll figure, figure it, out. it out. Yeah, we'll figure yeah. it out. So... Um, no, yeah, this is my social. I created this entire network for my social life. So I'd have some friends. <laughs> I'm so well, lonely. Well, and I remember, too, that when you and I first discussed this, uh, it was at in the studios of Rogers Cable. That's up right. In, That's right. Up in uh, Toronto. And the problem was that the way they recorded was you would do four shows Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and was it Thursday? And then yeah, it was only the other way. I would fly up. I would fly from San Francisco to Toronto on Monday, arrive ah. in the evening on Monday. We'd do fifteen shows: Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And the fifteenth right. show, I would collapse into a puddle, and the car would pick me up and take me to the airport, and I'd be home that night. Well, and but and the key was <laughs> you crazy. then had three weeks with nothing to do. With nothing to do. It's, essentially, you crammed uh, crammed a month worth mm -hmm. of of programming material into one week, and so you were kind of sitting around thinking, huh, you know? Anybody what, sensible gonna... would have just said, gosh, this is great. <laughs> I get three weeks off a month, yeah. work really hard for five days, and then take, take it easy. But no. No, I said, oh, I think I'll start in a whole other business. And Leo, we're... I'm glad I did. Hundreds of thousands of people. And now nine years later. Eight years later, beginning our ninth. I can't yeah. That's so great, Steve. That That is amazing uh, in any business, but broadcasting especially. When a show is in its ninth year, uh, that's that's a long time. Yeah. That's a success. So, And this show, I have to tell you, uh, has, there's been zero attrition, and it's only grown over those nine years. It is larger that's now than deep. it was when we started, so... Uh, and I think that says something to, obviously, you and the content, but the people's need to know about security as well. In fact, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to tell you how to secure your email. Well, yeah. What I want to do, I, I'm, I, as promised, we're going to talk about PGP. And I thought long and hard about the title, and I decided I would we would title this podcast Considering PGP because... I definitely want to talk about what it is and how it works and the protocols and, and all of that. But but I still think it's fighting an uphill battle. I still come away thinking, eh, you know, the, the Internet is full of protocols that clever people put together that have niches 
but just kind of never got off the ground. They just, they I mean they never got traction. They 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 never got got critical mass. And and I'm afraid that PG that I have to put PGP there. That it's that it, I mean for, I want to say it absolutely does what it promises. And and it is it, it passes every test of serious security. So I mean it it is and and Phil right out of the gate designed it beautifully. He made one little mistake, which is a typical mistake that's hard to avoid, and that is he did design his own cipher, uh, which ended up not to be a good Everybody idea. Everybody does that. I wish they would just it's, use yeah the stuff. That, and you could you know back then you could argue. That okay, we didn't. There was you weren't just like waiting around in really good professionally designed ciphers, right? And uh, I have in my notes what he called it, and I can't. It's, I, I'm blanking. I thought on it he right was now. using it's, a Blowfish and Triple Desk, but maybe I'm wrong. Oh no, no, he, th- those are all available. I mean, this thing is well now. Yeah, now you can use RSA and everything. Absolutely yeah. state of the art. Yeah. And there were there were problems with. Oh, he called it Bassomatic. <laughs> you know, I don't think that survived too long because I I started using PGP in 1997, and I don't and I've interviewed Phil many times. I don't remember Bassomatic, so that uh, yeah, quickly was, it was from Dan Aykroyd's Saturday yeah, Night Live. Skit. He was putting a bass in the blender, in a blender, yeah. and he said that's basically what this does to your data. Is what the blender <laughs> well, does to a, the bass. Know, see, it's a good name. It's a descriptive so name. He called it Bassomatic. Anyway, we're, we're we're gonna we're gonna talk about all about PGP. But as is still happening, uh, there's a bunch of news uh, relative to, you know, the continuing blowback and consequences of the Snowden leaks. Um, some and several things happened this week that were interesting and and helped to. Uh, there, there. This is a little bit of a thinking piece at the top of the show because there's this whole question of. You know, if you don't have anything to hide, why do you need privacy? Yeah. Um, there have been a couple events which have induced some some smart people to make some comments that that I want to share. So, so I, I want to share some some writing of a couple people, uh, and also, of course, we have uh, the sad news that it has has turned out for. Um, uh, Ladar Levison, who we discussed last week, who decided to close down LavaBit. It turns out that shortly after his announcement, but short, uh, but enough afterwards that we didn't pick up on it last week, has come the news that he received a a, a essentially a threatening letter from the powers that be in, in the federal government. For shutting down his service, um, and this was reported by a very good reporter in the, it, 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 with NBC News, an investigative reporter who I'm sure you know, Mike Isikoff. Yeah, who's um, very good. Who, he used to write, write at Newsweek. Smart yeah, yeah, guy. yeah. I mean, this guy is is top of his game. So uh, he wrote, and and then Tech Dirt reported on it, saying the saga of LavaBit founder Ladar Levison is getting even more ridiculous as he explains that the government has threatened him with criminal charges for his decision 
to shut down the business. But he Rather, can't have been surprised because <laughs> the pro- that the reason he shut it down, he wanted to erase. Yes, the database, well, and that's what the government wanted. So it's not that they shut he shut down; it's that he erased the database. Of course. Well, uh, apparently not, because he says so, so. The decision to shut down the business rather than agree to some mysterious court order. So what Isakoff has concluded is that they wanted continuing surveillance in the future, and so they're so. If you read this this way, they're upset that they lost right. him as a resource. Right. We, were, we were really and excited about being able to tap into your ability. But precisely. see, this is what you speculated, is that, that they wanted ongoing keys. You said this uh, uh, yeah. from Lava Bit, and so I think you're probably right, yeah. Yeah, um, so uh, they said the feds are apparently arguing that the act of shutting down the business itself was a violation of the order. And uh, and then Isikoff says, a source familiar with the matter told NBC News that James Trump, a senior litigation counsel in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Alexandria, Virginia, sent email to Levinson's lawyer last Thursday, the day Lava Bit was shuttered, so that's Thursday before last in our time frame, stating that Levinson may have, quote, violated the court order unquote, a statement that was interpreted as a possible threat to charge Levison with contempt of court. That same article suggests that the decision to shut down Lavabit was over something much bigger than just looking at one individual's information, since it appears that Lavabit has cooperated in the past on such cases, as we said last week. Instead, the suggestion now is that the government was seeking a tap on all accounts. Levison stressed that he has complied with, quote, upwards of two dozen court orders, unquote, for information in the past that were targeted at, quote, specific users, unquote, and that, quoting him, I never had a problem with that. But without disclosing details, he suggested that the order he received more recently was markedly different, requiring him to cooperate in broadly based surveillance that would scoop up information about all the users of his service. He likened the demands to a requirement to install a tap on his telephone. And so, and we know, we know what the architecture is because he was public with the architecture. And the fact is he didn't have keys to his database. He only acquired them as people connected in order to download the contents of their inbox. And so that's what we discovered from a technology, purely technology standpoint last week. It was clear to me that that they couldn't capture his database. They they I mean it wouldn't do him any good. That part he got right. That was useful. That that he didn't have the keys to the data, but the problem was he would always receive them at his end, in order for the user to, to then decrypt the data on the server and download it. So it must have been that if he was upset with something, it was that he was going to be asked to provide this on an ongoing basis. And now they're saying, we're not happy with you for doing that, for like deciding not to be in that business. It's really getting bad. It is. And, you know, Leo, th- 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 there are – I've seen people say – that you know, like, why are people getting upset? This is don't we? We've all known this was going on. And first of all, 
I think it's very clear we didn't all know this was going on. And also that only cynics knew it was going on. Correct. Uh, in, correct. One way, in some ways, this is what really pains me the most: is that the most cynical, conspiracy-minded people in this country have been proven right, and uh, that bothers me because I wanted to believe in the government. I wanted to believe. Yes, I did too. I mean, I you know, yes, <laughs> I, I was literally a Boy Scout, and we, yeah, you know, we we yeah. pledged to the flag. Uh, and we, um, we really need to get back to that, a government we can be proud of that and, upholds yes, the and Constitution. That's the other this. thing, too. There is this sense now of an a, our own government being adversarial. Yeah. And that's really yeah. uncomfortable. And I'm sure you're going to talk about what happened to uh, the Guardian and Glenn Ge- Greenwald's uh, yes. uh, spouse. And that is – now, that was the British government, but this is yes. this is what we fear. And I think that it's, is what it's I have coming true, next. I'm sorry to say. That is what I have up next yeah. because the second part of this is – the government's response. Yeah. That is, it's one thing for them to be doing this, but they're really being very graceless in No, they're the way insisting they're... on their prerogative to break to uh, break the law, essentially. Yeah. So, uh, the editor of The Guardian uh, wrote a good piece. I also He also put together about a, a less, six minutes and something, I think it's 45 seconds, so a little bit less than seven-minute video, which I just tweeted the link to before the podcast. So if anyone wants to see Alan Rusbridger in front of a camera speaking and explaining himself, there's that too. But I want to share two pieces from a larger posting of his that he put up yesterday uh, discussing exactly what you were saying, Leo. So jumping into the middle of what he wrote, uh, he says, On Sunday morning, David Miranda the partner of Guardian columnist Glenn Greenwald, was detained as he was passing through Heathrow Airport on his way back to Rio de Janeiro, where the couple live. Greenwald, of course, is the reporter who has broken most of the stories about state surveillance based on the leaks from the former NSA contractor Edward Snowden. That word reporter is extremely important. Yes, yes, because his partner David Miranda is not a journalist. Uh, Greenwald's work has undoubtedly been troublesome and embarrassing for Western governments. But as the debate in America and Europe has shown, there is considerable public interest in what his stories have revealed about the right balance between security, civil liberties, freedom of speech, and privacy. He's raised acutely disturbing questions about the oversight of intelligence, about the use of closed courts, about the cozy and secret relationship between the government and vast corporations. And, of course, this this morning, the Wall Street Journal, Leo, disclosed, gave some numbers, put some numbers to the relationship the NSA has with major, you know, top-level telco providers. Um, and, and continuing, and about the extent to which millions of citizens now routinely have their communications intercepted, collected, analyzed, and stored. In this work, he is regularly helped by David Miranda. Miranda is not a journalist, but he still plays a valuable role in helping his partner do his journalistic work. Greenwald has his plate full, reading and analyzing the Snowden material, writing and handling media and social media requests from around the world. He can certainly use this backup. That work is immensely complicated, and this is really interesting, Leo, that this guy's writing this. That work 
is immensely complicated by the certainty that it would be highly unadvisable for Greenwald or any other journalist to regard any electronic means of communication as safe. The Guardian's work on the Snowden story has involved many individuals taking a huge number of flights in order to have face-to-face meetings. Not good for the environment, but increasingly the only way to operate. Soon, we'll be back to pen and paper. Miranda was held for nine hours under Schedule 7 of the UK's terror laws, which give enormous discretion to stop, search, and question people who have no connection with terror as ordinarily understood. Suspects have no right to legal representation and may have their property confiscated for up to seven days. Under this measure, uniquely crafted for ports and airport transit areas, there are none of the checks and balances that apply once someone is in Britain proper. There's no need to arrest or charge anyone, and there is no protection for journalists or their materials. A transit lounge in Heathrow is a dangerous place to be. Unbelievable. So, But I thought it was really interesting that he talks about the as a consequence of what they of what journalism now understands to be the case and we'll talk about grok law here in a second leo um it's a huge chilling effect on what is a very important function of journalism which is to keep an eye on government that's and the, to be able to guarantee your sources right. their own privacy and anonymity yeah. and or you'll have how no sources, which is right. what, frankly, the Obama administration wants. That's why they're so aggressively pursuing uh, uh, whistleblowers. I know. Well, anyway, we, we have, there's a fabulous blog posting that I'm going to share in a second here about an open letter to Obama that from, a, from an IT security expert in Silicon Valley who pr- pr- presents one of the most interesting analogies of, of pervasive surveillance that I've I've seen that I that's also thought provoking. But I want to finish with this. He's in, in the second part of what I wanted to excerpt from what Alan wrote. He says, a little over two months ago, I was contacted by a very senior government official claiming to represent the views of the prime minister. There followed two meetings in which he demanded the return or destruction of all the material we were working on. The tone was steely, if cordial, but there was an implicit threat that others within government and Whitehall favored a far more draconian approach. The mood toughened just over a month ago when I received a phone call from the center of government telling me, quote, you've had your fun. Now we want the stuff back, unquote. I know. It's just so bad. You've had your fun. That's the way they're characterizing what the Guardian is doing. It ain't fun. There followed further meetings with shadowy Whitehall figures. The demand was the same. Hand the Snowden material back or destroy it. I explained that we could not research and report on this subject if we complied with this request. 
The man from Whitehall looked mystified. You've had your debate. There's no need to write anymore. No. Period. No. <laughs> no. It's just beginning. During, Got bad news uh, for you, Whitehall. Yeah, thank God. During one of these meetings, I asked directly whether the government would move to close down the Guardian's reporting through a legal route by going to court to force the surrender of the material on which we were working. The official confirmed that in the absence of handover or destruction, there was indeed that this was indeed the government's intention. Prior restraint, near impossible in the U.S., was now explicitly and imminently on the table in the U.K., but my experience over WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks, the thumb drive, and the First Amendment had already prepared me for this moment. I explained to the man from Whitehall about the nature of international collaborations and the way in which these days media organizations could take advantage of the most permissive legal environments. Bluntly, we did not have to do our reporting from London. Already, most of the NSA stories were being reported and edited out of New York. And had it occurred to him that Greenwald lived in Brazil. Which is, by the way, where his partner was headed. He was transiting England. He wasn't even in England. Yep. The man was unmoved. And so, one of the more bizarre moments in the Guardian's long history occurred. With two... GCHQ security experts overseeing the destruction of hard drives in the Guardian's basement. Morons. Just to... <laughs> Morons. That's who's, that's who's running this. I know. Just to make sure there was nothing in the mangled bits of metal which could possibly be of any interest to passing Chinese agents. Then this, one of the guys jokes, we can call off the black helicopters joked one as he swept uh, up uh, remains uh, uh, of a MacBook Pro. Ha, ha, ha. Just, yeah. They're just making it real. In, in quite the contrary. I know. <laughs> Leo, just... mark my words. There will be technological consequences that will oh, take long. absolutely. That, yeah. There will be. I mean, you heard it here. That, I mean, we technologists, you know, the people who get technology and the Internet are, are not without recourse there there will be it's going to take months because these things take months to happen there will be a technological response that none of these agencies will view positively as a consequence more than anything of the fact of this kind of action and that they lie we cannot have in a democracy we cannot have our our government lying to us I would the response I was thinking of was the chilling effect it has, which your next story will talk about on yeah. technology. Uh, you know, already Germany's saying, "Well, you can't use Windows 8 because the uh, the TPM module gives a backdoor to the United States government." Um, so uh, there's that chilling. That's the effect I was thinking of. You're thinking of uh, consequences. I, I certainly don't want to be in the position where we're threatening consequences. We have no control over that. But I think no, no, no. And all I mean is empowerment. Yeah. Is, is uh, you know, that, I mean, there have been, and we've reported here, and I keep reading it, trem- there have been a tremendous upsurge of interest 
insecure solutions. And my point has always been they exist. You can do pre-internet encryption and you can do TNO. I mean, we'll be talking about it later. PGP right. is absolutely bulletproof. Right. I mean, and but you have to use it in order to, you know, be protected, but 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 I I predict that this puts pressure that we have never had before on the need for privacy yeah. and the all of the technology is there it just needs to get mobilized yeah you know we've been ta- i've been talking about pgp and re- and putting my key on uh, the front page of my website since li- literally 1997 no uptake never nobody was ever interested no. in it. all of a sudden there's a lot of interest yeah which is good so in another piece of news earlier this week this is uh, depressing as hell it is leo i was i, I was I shocked. think she i think pamela's overreacting but i understand her anyway go ahead yeah, so anyway, this is about Grok Law, which we've touched on th- for years. Fabulous uh, website. Really yep. good. Yep. And, and you know, she's um, uh, Pamela Jones, PJ, as she goes, uh, uh, got very upset by this. And and from her, you know, many— Grok Law, we should people- mention, is a site that discusses uh, uh, the law as it, as it applies to technology. Right. And it's hideously useful. Uh, it's one of yes. the one of the resources I use all the time to understand lawsuits, patent issues. She, you know, she's really good. DRM, yeah. really informed legal yeah. discussion. Yeah. Yes. So uh, I'm not going to read her whole posting. It's it it's at groklaw.net, g r o k l a w dot net for anyone who wants more. But I accept, ex- excerpted a couple things because she, while I agree that she overreacted, Leo, there are, she said a couple things and also quoted um, uh, an author that I thought was had some very interesting things to say. So, so summarizing what came before, I put in brackets here. I feel betrayed, so I could w- walk into the sentence I wanted to start at, saying, "Knowing that persons I don't know." can paw through all my thoughts and hopes and plans in my emails with you. So she's, you know, really disturbed, she writes, by the, by the certainty now that she maintains email with an international community and by definition, international correspondence, email, is being captured. We now know that. So she, t- she says, they tell us that if you send or receive an email from outside the U.S., it will be read. If it's encrypted, they keep it for five years, presumably in the hopes of tech advancing to be able to decrypt it against your will and without your knowledge. And, of course, we know, Leo, that since um, uh, security certificates expire at most every three years, keeping encrypted content for five if you get the expired keys, guarantees your ability to ultimately decrypt everything. Does perfect forward security prevent that? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, so she says, Grok Law has readers all over the world. She says, I'm not a political person by choice, and I must say researching the latest developments convinced me of one thing. I am right to avoid it. And then... She talks about her feelings after 9-11 and how hugely upset she was by the events of, of 9-11, the 9-11 attacks. 
And then she so she says, part of my anguish was that there were people in the world willing to do that to other people, fellow human beings, people they didn't even know, civilians uninvolved in any war. I sound quaint, I suppose, but I always tell you the truth, and that is what I was feeling. So imagine how I feel now, imagining as I must, what kind of world we are living in if the governments of the world think total surveillance is an appropriate thing. And this was one of the, the sentences that, that, I, that really got me. She said, what I do know is it's not possible to be fully human if you are being surveilled 24-7. And then she quotes uh, uh, Jenna Malamud Smith, who uh, the author of a book, Privacy Matters. Um, and I guess Jenna quotes Alan Weston uh, in his book, Privacy and Freedom, saying in his landmark book, Privacy and Freedom, Alan Weston names four states of privacy, solitude, anonymity, reserve, and intimacy. The reasons for valuing privacy become more apparent as we explore these states, reading from the book. The essence of solitude and all privacy is a sense of choice and control. You control who watches or learns about you. You choose to leave and return. Intimacy is a private state because in it, people relax their public front, either physically or emotionally or occasionally both. They tell personal stories, exchange looks, or touch. They may ignore each other without offending. They may speak frankly using words they do not use in front of others, expressing ideas and feelings, positive or negative, that are unacceptable in public. When shielded from forced exposure, a person often feels more able to expose himself. And anyway, so I really liked that. I, I thought, you know, that that helps to understand sort of, you know, the creepy feeling of wanting to send an email to someone with content that is really private. I mean, that you you intend only to share with the other person. And and the the the, the sort of sense of self-censorship, which is now sort of pervading, you know, or or, or the, the, this the the idea of maybe needing to self censor whenever you use the internet because because this maybe I mean maybe we were wrong not to be cynical enough but you know now we know exactly what's going on and and you know I'm self conscious about doing searches for things that in, that interest me just intellectually because of this. The, the problem of false positives. Well, so there's a consequence. We're losing one of the uh, best law blogs uh, out there, Grok Law, because uh, yeah. she doesn't want to uh, be exposed this way. She's actually, it sounds like, trying to get off the Internet entirely. Yes, and um, unfortunately she did recommend a, a quote, secure email yeah. service. Uh, for what it's worth, it's absolutely not. Yeah. So she mentions Colab, 
as like being the best secure email solution available. Well, you know, secure email is close to being an oxymoron. Yeah, yeah. We're going to um, show you the most secure way to do it in this show. <laughs> yes, that is the content of... of There's the, no way to hide metadata. And, and as we know now, metadata yes. is going to be very, very well, revealing. But Colab does nothing. I mean, it, it's, you know... <laughs> She's, it, it she likes it because it's in Switzerland, so somehow that's yeah. magical. Yeah. No, that's exactly why. Yeah. She, she believes that they're in Switzerland and doesn't understand that there's no encryption yeah. as it heads out to Switzerland, which is where the NSA has stationed, you know, their listening posts. So, and, and Colab's on site. I really got myself worked up when I looked at this. I was like, oh, my God. I mean, they say, we offer secure email accounts including calendars and address books that synchronize to all your devices. <laughs> the data is stored in our own, in our very own data center Ooh. in Switzerland. Wow. This is like So is Google's. Silent Circle, <laughs> Silent Circle has Navy SEALs. It's like, oh, and we have our own data center in Switzerland. BF, oh, excuse me. <laughs> but anyway. no, and, and so I feel like Pamela's overreacted, uh, PJ's overreacted a little bit, um, I understand her concern, and uh, but and you know I don't know what it is that she's worried about uh, people finding out. Um, I wish that Grocklaw could continue because it's very useful. Um, she did, but she did try to shut it down a few years ago. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and brought somebody in to help her out. Yeah, um, it may be there are other reasons in addition. Yeah. It might just be a good opportunity, but it's a good protest. Um, you know, it's sad. Yeah. Now. I want to share this uh, open letter to the president, uh, and I don't know how to excerpt from it. Uh, it's not very long, and I think it's worthwhile. But and, and this is where there's an analogy that I think is really interesting. So this was posted day before yesterday, uh, uh, addressed to Dear President Obama. My, my name is Ben Adida, A-D-I-D-A. I am 36, married, two kids, working in Silicon Valley as a software engineer with a strong background in security. I've worked on the security of voting systems and health systems, on web browsers and payment systems. I enthusiastically voted for you three times in the 2008 primary and in both presidential elections. When I wrote about my support of your campaign five years ago, I said... In his campaign, Obama has proposed opening up to the public all bill debates and negotiations with lobbyists via TV and the Internet. Why? Because he trusts that Americans, when given the tools to see and understand what their legislators are doing, will apply pressure to keep their government honest. I gushed about how you supported transparency as broadly as possible. Actually, there was a funny tweet that I saw. Someone said, Obama's presidency is so transparent, now we can't see anything. Yeah. Anyway, it says, transparency as broadly as possible to enable better decision-making, to empower individuals, and to build a better nation. Now, I'm no stubborn idealist. I know that change is hard and slow. I know you cannot steer a ship as big as the United States as quickly as some would like. I know tough compromises are the inevitable path to progress. I also imagine that once you're president, the enormity of the threat from those who would attack Americans must be overwhelming. Yeah. The responsibility you feel, the level of detail you now understand, must make prior principles sometimes feel quaint. I cannot imagine 
what it's like to be in your shoes. I also remember that you called on us, your supporters, to stay active, to call you and Congress to task. I want to believe that you asked for this because you knew that your perspective as commander-in-chief would inevitably become skewed. So this is what I'm doing here. I'm calling you to task. You are failing hard on transparency and oversight when it comes to NSA surveillance. This failure is not the pragmatic compromise of Obamacare, which I strongly support. It is not the sheer difficulty of closing Guantanamo, which I understand. This failure is deep. If you fail to fix it, you will be the president principally responsible for the effective death of the Fourth Amendment and worse. He says with his topic, mass surveillance, the the specific topic of concern, to be clear, is mass surveillance. I am not concerned with targeted data requests based on probable cause and reviewed individually by publicly accountable judges. I can even live with secret data requests, provided they're very limited, finely targeted, and protect the free speech rights of service providers like Google and Facebook to release appropriately sanitized data about these requests as often as they would like. What I'm concerned about is the broad dragnet NSA signals intelligence recently revealed by Edward Snowden. This kind of surveillance is a different beast, comparable to routine frisking of every individual simply for walking down the street. It is repulsive to me. It should be repulsive to you too. If you're a hypochondriac, you might be tempted to ask your doctor for a full-body MRI or CT scan to catch health issues before detectable symptoms. Unfortunately, because of two simple probabilistic principles, you're much worse off if you get the test. First, it is relatively unlikely that a random person with no symptoms has a serious medical problem i.e., the prior probability is low. Second, it is quite possible, not likely, but possible, that a completely benign thing appears potentially dangerous on imaging, i.e., there is a noticeable chance of false positive. Put those two things together and you get this mind-bending outcome If the full-body MRI says you have something to worry about, you actually don't have anything to worry about. But try convincing yourself of that if you get a scary MRI result. Mass surveillance to seek out terrorism is basically the same thing. Very low prior probability that any given person is a terrorist. Quite possible that normal behavior appears suspicious. Mass surveillance means wasting tremendous resources on dead ends. And because we're human and we make mistakes when given bad data, mass surveillance sometimes means badly hurting innocent people. 
And then he quotes the case of Jean, uh, Jean Charles Dimenez, who was shot seven times in the head in the UK uh, after the bombings, uh, just because of false identification. So what happens when a massively funded effort? Oh, and then this is another great point. He says, so what happens when a massively funded effort has frustratingly poor outcomes? You get scope creep. The surveillance apparatus gets redirected to other purposes. The TSA starts overseeing sporting events. The DEA and IRS dip into the NSA data set. Anti-terrorism laws with far-reaching powers are used to intimidate journalists and their loved ones. And he was talking about what what happened over the weekend. Mm -hmm. Where does it stop? If we forego due process for a certain category of investigation, which by design will see its scope broaden to just about any type of investigation, is there any due process left? And then he adds something else that I thought was interesting. He's under wrong on principle. He says, I can imagine some people, maybe some of your trusted advisors, will say that what I've just described is simply a poor implementation of surveillance and that the NSA does a much better job. So it's worth asking, assuming we can perfect a surveillance system with zero false positives Is it then okay to live in a society that implements such surveillance and detects any illegal act? This has always felt wrong to me, but I couldn't express a simple, principled, ethical reason for this feeling until I spoke with a colleague recently who said it better than I ever could. For society to progress, individuals must be able to experiment very close to the limit of the law, and sometimes cross into illegality. A society which perfectly enforces its laws is one that cannot make progress. What would have become of the civil rights movement if all of its initial transgressions had been perfectly detected and punished? What about gay rights or women's rights? Is there even room for civil disobedience. Though we want our laws to reflect morality, they are, at best, a very rough and sometimes completely broken approximation of morality. Our ability as citizens to occasionally transgress the law is the force that brings our society's laws closer to our moral ideals. We should reject mass surveillance even the theoretically perfect kind, with all the strength and fury of a people striving to form a a more perfect union. So, anyway, I thought there was some... It's really really good, yeah. I I like the MRI analogy, because I think that's exactly what's happened, and I think that's that's Ben Adida writing, and his blog is benlog, B-E-N-L-O-G dot com. Yeah, um, yeah. I think I, I don't know where you found that, but I think that that's a, you know, kind of those are words that I would I would have said as well. Yeah, and and, and I it was that that was what I meant when I talked about the analogy, the analogy to it's a excellent to a analogy. scan. Yeah, it it really is. Yeah, because it is the probability, this low probability 
that has a high tendency for false positives. I know from from just my own eight years of doing a lot of medical research that scans are really frowned on for that right. reason. First of all, they you know. Uh, uh, um, it's, counter the it's counterintuitive, the, the, but these full body scans, which they're, they're selling now, you know, you can, there's, there's these, this is a business and yes. most doctors say, don't do it. It's a bad, yes. they, it's a, we don't, it means a bad idea. And it's not intuitive why it's a bad idea. I think he described it quite well. And it's precisely what's wrong with mass surveillance. And um, uh, we see it all, all the time. I really, well, and I, Leo, yeah. And, and, and the fact that the Patriot Act has now allowed us to suspend habeas corpus. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea that you can yeah. be I mean, people make mistakes. Yeah. Government makes mistakes. Yeah. The idea that that goons can show up at your door and take you away without recourse, without needing to explain themselves, simply saying terrorism just un, under the Patriot Act. Essentially, we, we have un, we've unleashed and unbound um, agents of the government yeah. in, in a way that has never happened before. Yeah, I mean, and 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 it's it, it's a it's a fundamental principle of of the country. I've, Fortunately, of, of the we still have the right to debate this in public uh, without yes. fear of knocks coming on the door. But I don't yes. know how much longer that's going to go on. When I see the kind of harassment that uh, uh, Glenn Greenwald is receiving. I start to well, worry yes. that, in fact, does, just does, speaking out will, in fact, make you a target. And doesn't this feel like harassment for for his partner? It to is. go through nine year not nine, nine hours. hours of detainment. No, it, it's pure harassment. Yes, and it's just the beginning. I think now it's always been a little worse in Britain. I hope that uh, you know we have, I think, a constitution that uh, is more protective of our individual rights. I hope that that wins in the end. Well. Only if it's followed. And, yeah. you know, and, and when... I thought when, what he said is that you don't want to be the president who his, goes down in history as the guy who overturned the Fourth Amendment is right on. And I hope that somebody's paying attention. And, and I forgot. I didn't want to keep reading because I know this was getting long. But later on, he, he comes back and makes it personal. He says, you know, Obama, Barack, if you were still a professor teaching constitutional law... At in you know in Chicago, what would you be saying? Yeah, well, as a I senator, mean, he was very critical of this. He was yes. extremely critical as a senator. I don't understand what happened. I mean, you know, I think yeah. that I think that uh, this is the the law, the blog post is accurate. You know, and I think it's it's very generous to uh, to the president, frankly. Um, yeah. But uh, we got to do something. This can't go on. It really can't go on. So uh, I did want to mention that I was disappointed in Google, um, and, and maybe I was more disappointed in the reporting. I'm not sure. Um, but Google, since we last spoke, made a very big deal about now they are encrypting their drives. <laughs> I, and I, it caused me to coin a new acronym. We What's have that? TNO. We have PIE. We now have ZVE. ZVE. Zero value encryption. encryption. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> this is Google's very disappointing ZVE. It makes you feel uh, better, though. That's the importance. Oh, and it, don't we all need yeah. that, Leo? We really we yeah. need to feel better. Yeah. yeah. 
Anyway, uh, they they did a uh, a blog spot posting on a Google the Google Cloud platform made a big deal about how they're now encrypting their data on their drives. Now it is true that it raises the bar for somebody physically stealing the drive. I mean, they rotate keys. You know, I mean, they're doing the key management. That's, you know, we don't, don't worry. We'll handle the keys. You don't have to. Ha- well, it's like, hello, ZVE. You know, I mean, it, it means nothing. But it, it the way the, the media covered it, I, you know, tw- my Twitter feed went crazy with people saying, hey, Google's encrypting their data. It's like, yeah, and decrypting it. So, yeah. uh, big deal. And so the bad news is, remember that about a month ago, I picked up a rumor that, 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 that this was happening, and I got excited thinking maybe they were going to do some form of TNO encryption. They'd have to give instead, us the, let us determine the keys and hold them. But yeah, you can always they, do that. You use TrueCrypt on your end and store it on Google Drive. It's TNO. Or Box or Boxcryptor is another great solution. Yeah. We've talked about those. Oh, and um, yeah. But you have to have the key. They can't have a key. Correct. Zero value encryption. I like it. Zeev, another Zeev. Okay, so a, a consequence of the April eighth, twenty fourteen discontinuance of XP's updates didn't really sink in. Last time I mentioned, I mentioned it last week that you know now we're at two hundred and twenty nine days and counting, so there's time. But remember, I, I mentioned last week that that Microsoft actually sent out a note saying, just want to make sure everyone understands <laughs> that we're not going to be continuing to update XP Service Pack 3 after April 8th of next year. Well, what's significant is it's not... and Oh, and, and when I talked about it last week, it was under the context of the security community beginning to wonder if if... Maybe bad guys are not holding their exploits back, not using them, mm. but waiting. That's what I do. There's such a yes, exactly. Yeah. Wait till wait till after April eighth, and everything's golden. But here's the here's the second part of this problem, and that is almost all of these bad problems affect. All supported versions of Windows. Right. We see that. I mean, it's not always. Sometimes it'll just be Server 2008 or, you know, a, a Windows 7 thing. But normally it's everything because, this, you know, we know this is just one OS and they keep putting different candy colors on the outside and, you know, give it a few more features. But there's a core operating system that, that hails from NT and has had, you know, more crap glued onto it over time. But basically... It's the it's the Microsoft OS that and they come up with new versions because they need us all to, you know, give them more money for upgrades. <laughs> the point being that after April 8th, there will continue to be problems found in the remaining operating systems, Vista and 7 and Windows 8. And those same problems will still be in XP. So the other thing that we know happens is the bad guys reverse engineer the patches. Patches will continue coming out for all supported operating systems that should be coming out for XP, but Microsoft won't any longer. And so when those are reverse engineered, those 
newly discovered vulnerabilities discovered by the act of patching the newer OSs will give the bad guys vulnerabilities that will never be fixed in Windows XP. So arguably, unfortunately, much as I hate to say this, because they're continuing to have, we're continuing to find fundamental problems with Windows even now, it's going to be important to really be careful about how you use XP after uh, it is no longer the recipient of, of security patches. I'm sure Microsoft will have a page as they did, remember, with IE6 saying, stop using it. <laughs> yeah. Stop using XP. Okay, so we I just need to talk about this little Facebook bug. and, and Oh, this the... was a good story. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. So a security researcher in Palestine by the name of Khalil uh, Strateth finds a problem that allows anyone, and he is anyone, to violate the security, uh, I mean, a Facebook bug, to post onto a, anyone, any other Facebook member's private timeline and wall. Hmm. And so to verify this, he posts something on Sarah Gooden's, Gooden's private wall. Does he know she, her? I mean... I don't know how he chose her. Yeah. Uh, the article I read said that she was the first woman ever to sign up for Facebook. Oh. So she's she must work at Facebook, time, yeah, probably, yeah. Um, and I guess maybe a friend of Mark's, but nothing happened. So he does that. Then he contacts Facebook security to report the problem and to collect his five hundred dollar bounty. And he's told, "Sorry, this is not a bug." And he thinks, "What? Well, okay." So he posts to Mark Zuckerberg's timeline. <laughs> Some bug now, baby. <laughs> he was quite polite. Within minutes, within minutes, Facebook security engineer Ola Okilola contacts uh, uh, Khalil to request details of the exploit. Khalil's Facebook account is frozen, later unfrozen. And Khalil is denied his five thousand, sorry, five hundred dollar bounty on the grounds that he violated Facebook's terms of service. Oh come on! Which disqualifies him <laughs> for receiving compensation. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> then Facebook acknowledges that they should have asked for additional information yeah, initially. You think? Now, anyway, that's the story. That's I, pretty funny. And I can. I mean, I, I probably the person on the front line. Who, who Khalil first contacted, you can imagine how many false positives right. this poor person right. has to field. And, I mean, every, especially when you offer money. If it was free, then, eh, not, you know, bogus people wouldn't bother. But if, you, if it's a way to get a quick 500 bucks, you're just going to be trying to come up with all kinds right. of nonsense. And so those poor guys on the front line of Facebook security must just be like, I mean, this is not a bug, must be something they like have nightmares that, that repeat in their heads at night. So anyway. It's that, a that, feature. That, that's okay, now, listeners of this podcast. Yes. You need to go listen to something Leo did last week. Uh-oh. Am I in trouble? Triangulation with Esther Dyson. Oh, wasn't she great? Yeah. Oh, Leo. 
I knew she was going to be good. It, it it did not disappoint. She I didn't is, get a chance to say hi. I'm sorry. Uh, you were in the chat room, and I apologize. That's fine. Yeah. Um, I've known Esther for about three decades. Yeah. Uh, I met. I did a, a presentation for. There was a weird uh, conference. Roger von Eck, who the the whack on the side of the head guy. Oh yeah. Uh, sort of creative thinking and creativity yeah. and things. Uh, somehow he invited me to speak at his conference. And at one point, I dropped down onto my knees to pray to IBM. <laughs> um, then I'm going to see. I told the story. This was before the PC Junior uh, was going to come out. We, didn't, we knew that IBM was working on a home computer. Yeah. There was the IBM PC and XT and so forth, you know, the industrial computers. And IBM, who had launched the computer industry, the, I mean, the PC industry, finally, after the first sort of sputtering pre-launch with the Apple II and, and the Ataris, now IBM had made it happen. Uh, clones were out. I mean, this was we were moving forward. So now they were going to do something for the home. Mm. And so my point to this conference was that what whatever IBM did was really, really important. So, so I, I sort of set it all up and... And I dropped to my knees, put my hands together, and looked up at the sky and, and prayed to IBM. I said, um, uh, oh, I guess also beforehand, I, I talked about how um, – oh, and you may remember the nickname for this thing was the peanut for some reason. Oh, yeah. Remember, yeah. it was the it was the peanut was like their yeah. code word. Like yeah. Macintosh was supposed to be the code word at at Apple, but it became their actual name of the machine. This was the peanut, the IBM peanut mm-hmm. that was there. And I guess because it was small and you know yeah. downscale yeah. and so forth. And so at one point, as I'm talking behind the podium, I, I talk about the experience we've all had at the zoo, where we've got a you know we're feeding the animals, and we. Or I guess maybe we're feeding ourselves with with peanuts because you crack open the shell and there's nothing there, and so that ties in later when I'm on my knees, be, you know, praying to IBM, beseeching them to please give us, uh, or, or please do not give us a peanut shell with no nuts. And anyway, so there, it was a bunch of craziness, <laughs> but Esther liked it a lot, and so invited me to speak at, at her conference uh, uh, in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, point is, triangulation number 115, listeners, ab- go watch it. Listen to it, watch it, whatever. It's 45 minutes, and it is so full of just, I don't know what Esther has. Esther has a way of distilling stuff. I mean, it's her sort of her job. It's what she does. But and I loved, I, 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 I thought maybe I would go back through and try to find a lot of her little one-liners but I didn't have time. One thing that I did love was that she's explained that her goal in weightlessness was she, she, she decided I want to be weightless long enough to be bored of, of weightlessness. She's, she's thought, been weightless perfect. seven or eight times. I don't know if she, uh, I think she still enjoys it. I don't know if she's, but bored she's yet. an avid swimmer. And right, I, I right. mean, wherever she is, she swims. And, um, and so I thought, well, I wonder, like, swimming and weightlessness. But, you know, but I, I love that concept is because, I mean, if I were weightless, oh, my God, there's it's all exciting. kinds of things. I, yeah. I want well, this, I want to try spinning axially and I want to, <laughs> like, you know, I want to do all these different things. Yeah, yeah. But, but imagine 
getting to the point where you're bored with it. That's like the perfect. Now we're mean, talking. Like, now we're talking. Exactly. <laughs> she wants to go to Mars. You saw that. She wants to end her life at Mars. Yeah, cause because there's no coming back. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll uh, I would go. I'll, I'll go. Yeah. I'm, I'm available. <laughs> okay. Uh, I did want to wrap up because I had not I had not caught up with Breaking Bad. Um, I saw a couple of tweets from people who saying who said, "Steve, you know, you're a little slow in the uptake here." <laughs> to that I say, yes, Leo, it's the best thing I've ever seen. In oh, my life. it's really it's a great show, and the last season oh my is God. fabulous. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I I'm not kidding. This is one I was trying to think of. This is something I will repurchase the box set. We have six episodes left, and they're shutting it down. Yeah, uh, I will repack. I will purchase the box set, and probably watch the whole thing through a few more times in the same way that I can read Peter Hamilton novels after, you know, with the spacing of a few years. It is, it is fabulously written mm -hmm. and acted at, and assembled. Yeah. I'm just stunned. It's up for 13 Emmys this time. Uh, uh, Brian, the lead, Cranston, uh, has won three times for Best Actor in a Dramatic Series. Um, and what's really interesting is how they evolve his character over six seasons from sort of basically a good guy who's who's in a bad situation to eh, somebody who can pretty much justify anything he does. <laughs> yeah. And I also love it that it's also got that whole the whole Mafia Don-esque thing happening because – it, it's like a a, a, a a overriding theme with with like the mafia types that their families come first. Family is so important, and that is exactly what where Brian always goes, or or the character Walt always Walter White goes for his justification for for things. Anyway, for what it's worth, for those who didn't see the Talking Bad. Uh, segment. It's an hour after the show airs on Sundays. I watch them both because now I'm a serious fanboy. Um, <laughs> and the creator is very happy with what they did. I mean, everyone, huge tension now exists among the community of us, of which I am now proudly count myself a member of people watching Breaking Bad. What is going to happen? How are they going to wrap this up? And the writers are tickled to death. They are extremely happy with how this how this wraps up. Sort of like every every aspect of this apparently gets tied up. So uh, that, and we don't know any more than that. But uh, anyway, it's just wow. If um, I, I I will say again, I tried to watch it once, and the first couple episodes just didn't get me. I just thought eh, I don't think this is for me. If if if, if you've had that experience. Push on. Give it the, – the first season I think was only seven episodes. Yes, the first season was seven and because they probably weren't too sure. AMC was like, ah, well, 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 we'll give you a commitment of seven. Then they had three seasons of, of you know, full-length, full full season uh, seasons. <laughs> so, wow. I just wanted to say it rocks. Um, speaking of that, uh, I did make a, a, a faux pas minor one last week where I mentioned bit message and blockchain in the same sentence. I only 
I know that BitMatch does not use the blockchain technology. Someone said, Steve, not the blockchain, because BitMessage does not keep everything forever, whereas the blockchain is everything forever. Um, BitMessage uses a variation where things expire after a couple of weeks. I, I did mention that last week, but I shouldn't have used the term blockchain. So for people who are <laughs> watching that closely, I apologize for that. I wanted to correct that. Uh, SpinRight continues to run fabulously forward we are now beginning we yeah yesterday i posted a test release that is beginning to transfer data uh we have found and killed the weirdest anomalies that people have found P- people have 133 megahertz pentiums leo that we're that we're testing this on because of course spinright needs <laughs> to go all the way back to the you, dawn time. where'd you find that <laughs> oh i mean there there and, and there was That's a funny. there was a subtle problem i had on a machine that that had less than 16 megs of RAM because it went looking down in conventional memory for an additional allocation, and I had forgotten to remove that from the allocation bitmap. So, you know, all we're finding all kinds of things. I, I it is looking like with the first release of Spinrite, I'm gonna I'm gonna at least look into incorporating the AHCI controller support, the advanced host controller interface which I was thinking I was going to put off to 6.2 because I look at everything I've done so far and it's all the perfect foundation for supporting that next generation controller also. And I would love to just have those both of those bases covered. So Good. anyway, we're, we're moving forward really well, doing lots of testing. And uh, now people, we're beginning to transfer data from drives. Very exciting. All right, we're going to learn about PGP and I'm looking forward to this. We should say, by the way, PGP is a commercial project product uh, created by Phil Zimmerman and uh, uh, sold by uh, now by Symantec. We're, I presume you're going to talk not about the commercial project, but the PGP protocol uh, and right. its various implementations, including and its history and history. so forth. Yeah, because I use uh, the open source uh, GNU Privacy Guard and uh, yep. find that to be an excellent choice and non-commercial choice, um, but. Let's talk about protecting yourselves in other ways, particularly when you're online. Uh, you know, we spent a lot of time on this show talking about encryption. And uh, you probably thought, well, gee, if I could just encrypt my uh, traffic coming out of my computer, I wouldn't have to worry about my ISP spying on me. <clears throat> I wouldn't have to worry if I were an open access uh, Wi-Fi spot at a coffee shop or at a hotel sharing an Internet with everybody else in the hotel. I wouldn't have to worry. And that's why... Uh, people came up with this concept of a virtual private network. <clears throat> Originally used in business to connect directly to the business, the business would run the VPN server. You'd use a client on your laptop, and uh, you'd be able to log in, validated, authenticated into the business computer, and be as if you're on their uh, network. But now it's it's used in a much more a variety of ways uh, to uh, make your uh, conversations private online. And... Uh, you can run your own open VPN server. It's not easy. I think we did a show on how hard it was a few years back. Um, or you can use a provider. We like ProXPN. ProXPN uses OpenVPN. They also use uh, PPTP for those devices that can't support it. Although, here's some uh, good news. They now have a, uh, a client app on Android that will give you OpenVPN on Android, it's uh, it's available in the Google Play Store, and so that's really really good news because PPTP is not quite as secure as we know. Uh, Pro XPN has a free service, and you certainly can try it. But 
you know, for the best speeds, the best results, you're going to want to use the pro version. And uh, normally it's $9.95 a month, $75 when you buy a year's worth. But we have a special offer, 20% off Pro XPN when you use our offer code SN20 for Security Now 20 or 20% off. It makes it less than 5 bucks a month on the yearly plan. And, of course, you can always cancel within seven days for a full refund. Pro XPN will solve the problem of an ISP that spies on you keeping an eye on the six strikes law, for instance. But they also do more. They allow you to emerge anywhere on the Internet you want, eliminating geographic restrictions. They have servers all over the world, including Dallas, Seattle, London, Singapore, L.A., New York City, and Amsterdam. They have a client for a Mac and Windows. You don't need it, but you can use it to give you advanced controls. And, of course, it works with iOS and now Android with uh, the uh, OpenVPN client, which is excellent. So a secure encrypted tunnel through which all your online data passes back and forth. You're going to like it. All your email, your, your, your web surfing, your file sharing, your instant messenger protected from prying eyes right up to the ProXPN servers anywhere in the world. I want you to try it free if you want, but uh, if you want to look at the paid version, which really is great, visit ProXPN.com slash twit. And use the offer code SN20 to get 20% off. ProXPN.com. Steve approved, by the way. <laughs> we asked him to take a look at it before we agreed to do the uh, advertising for it. Well, because they use a, a tremendously the well solution. Yeah. regarded you know, yeah. open VPN as, yeah. their, uh, as their VPN technology. So, yeah. So, let's talk okay. about PGP. Um, I always wondered where the name came from because it sounded like modesty. You know, pretty good privacy. <laughs> it's okay. And I thought, well, can I have better than that? You know, <laughs> I that, like really good privacy. I like RGP. Really yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it turns out that the wonderful fictional community of Garrison Keillor's Lake Wobegon <laughs> sported, among many other memorable locations, a grocery store huh. named Ralph's Pretty Good Grocery. And apparently Phil Zimmerman was a fan of Lake Wobegon, uh, and he drew his inspiration from uh, Garrison's whimsy, calling... His effort, pretty good privacy. We also know Phil was not the best namer of things, but that's a... Uh, well, <laughs> he was, yes, a, he was exactly. a good coder, though. That's yes. what really counts. Um, so the good news is the privacy is actually quite a bit better than just pretty good. In fact, it's truly state-of-the-art. And we'll talk about some of those details here in a second. Uh, there was one little mistake... Uh, which hurt the privacy in the early days before this really happened. Actually, this was at version 1.0 that really didn't see much attention. It wasn't until PGP 2 that it really took off. But in version 1, uh, Phil made the mistake, which is always tempting for someone who's interested in, in cryptology, uh, of doing his own cipher. How many times? On this podcast, yeah. have we warned people, please do do not write your own bit mixing technique that you're sure is the best thing anyone <laughs> has ever come up with. And your mother can't figure it out. Uh, that's not the bar you will need to no. get past. No. Uh, uh, Phil 
did, unfortunately, invent his own symmetric cipher named Basomatic <laughs> in PGP-10, <laughs> which was rather quickly and embarrassingly found to be insecure. Over a discussion at the crypto conference in 1991, someone said, ah, you know, Phil, I was looking at Basomatic. Uh, maybe that's not such a good idea. Um, and in the source code, Phil explains that Basomatic got its name from an old Dan Aykroyd SNL, Saturday Night Live skit, involving a blender and a whole fish. Apparently, the Basomatic algorithm does to data what the original Basomatic blender did to the fish. <laughs> Thus the name. Yes. Uh, the good news is Basomatic is no more the cipher. And as is the case for all good state-of-the-art crypto systems, it is multi-algorithm multi uh, completely. Um, what happened was initially... It went with RSA and IDEA, which is uh, uh, the IDEA is a very good symmetric cipher. It was unfortunately intellectually encumbered, intellectual property encumbered, as was RSA. As we know, of course, RSA had patents on it, but patents have all finally expired. There were non-encumbered alternatives uh, that were available, and so... PGP was able to to fall back uh, and use those. So it is so th the way to think of PGP and and thus really the reason for its success is it isn't just by any means about email encryption. You know, it that may be the you know sort of like the the plane on which most of us have some intersection with PGP, but it is truly a, a generic, nicely designed, complete crypto system. Um, I, I spent some time, read the RFCs, dug into the uh, format and, and semantics, and I, I, I came away feeling very impressed Anybody could confidently use PGP for any application that it is intended for. It's had, because it began back in 91, it's had a long history. And we're now at PGP 5, um, sort of like in the formal versioning. Uh, Leo, you mentioned GNU PG, which of course is GPG which is, you know, that version. Um, there's also OpenPGP. OpenPGP is sort of the standards body of which the other, of which PGPs are then implementations. It's a it's it's, also, it is a standard. It's RFC 4880. So. Right, yeah. right. And, and, and is embodied in a, in a library of code. So you can put command line front ends. You can put GUI front ends. You know, you can use this, this block of code as your reference code for PGP. Um, so um, it supports multiple algorithms for signing, for authentication, for encryption. Um, it, uh, it originally had a, had a non-hierarchical flat keying system. 
Um, and I didn't realize until I read the spec, you can use a, a shared secret key hmm. or huh. an asymmetric key. Right, which is how most Either people way, do it. Exactly. Mo yeah. And and so so here here's here's I mean and and what I like about this is the protocol is the kind of thing we've talked about often. If I, I I will describe it to you and I have described exactly the same sort of thing in in like tens, twenties, thirties, maybe not hundreds, but you know tons of different contexts. So you have text now because. Textual content is normally highly compressible. Doing something like a deflate or a zip, that you know, doing compression is th probably the first thing you want to do. You cannot compress encrypted data because it's inherently pseudo-random if it's good encryption. So you need to compress it if you're going to beforehand. And most PGP content is compressed because once you encrypt it, it becomes binary, and binary is often not safe to pass through email gateways if email is the, is the conduit you want to use. So that requires that the binary be inflated in, back into ASCII, and we'll talk about how that's done, making it larger. So it makes sense to first make it smaller, then encrypt it, then ASCIiize it, it, which is going to inherently make it larger. The result, though, is going to still be smaller than if it was non-compressed because you're only making it a third larger. And typically, text compression generates you know huge levels of of compression. So you take the text and compress it. Then, if you want to sign it, you you hash that result, and then encrypt the hash with your, that is the sender's, your private key. So what, what, what we have at this point is a hash of the text which is encrypted with your private key. So obviously, at the other end, if somebody wanted to verify that it hadn't been modified and that it was, that you were the sender, but if it wasn't encrypted, that is, you could sign without encrypting, then all they would have to do is they would hash what they receive and then decrypt the encrypted hash that you sent using your public key. And because of, as we know, the nature of, of, of asymmetric keys, what in order for it to properly decrypt, it had to have been encrypted with your private key. So decrypting the hash with your, with your, the sender's public key uh, guarantees that the hash was made with someone having your private key. So, and, and then if the results match, if the hash that was sent matches the hash that was computed right then, then we know that the document has not been altered. So that's the signing side. And again, Nothing special about this. I think one of the nice things about this is is that Phil just stayed with standard by the book protocol, um, doing you know nothing fancy. So once that's done, if you do want to get so th so that gives you authentication uh, and and verification that it hasn't been altered. If you also want privacy, then you get privacy from encryption. So then, 
a pseudo-random number is pulled out of thin air, only meant to be used once, so nice and long, and that is used as the key for symmetric encryption. So a, a nonce, as the term is, N-O-N-C-E, is 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 grabbed from a pseudo random number generator that will be that is a random one time use string of bits that keys a symmetric cipher and the cipher could be the, the cipher is specified in the headers so that the recipient knows which cipher to use for decrypting and there's a uh, the standard range of ciphers. AES is there. There's some stream ciphers, um, you know, and there, there's IDEA, triple DES, and a number of others. So, so again, this is, it is, it is cipher agnostic and within the protocol and the, the headers describe which ciphers were used, whether signing is there, whether privacy is, is present and so forth. So, so a random number is generated. That's used as, as the key to encrypt the document. And then, much as with the hash, the random nonce is encrypted with the recipient's private key. So you know where this is going to be sent to. So, so you use their public key. Did I just say private a second ago? I might have said private with emphasis, <laughs> which made it extra wrong. <laughs> the, the recipient's public. You can see team. why this is challenging yeah, for people. Yes. Does, yeah, you got to be very careful with yeah. this. So, so again, the, the nonce, which was chosen at random and used to encrypt the document, is encrypted with the recipient's public key, which is all the public, all anyone has. So that protects the key while it's being sent. So the all of this is bundled together and shot off to the recipient. The recipient receives this blob, and the PGP technology at his end looks at the headers, sees which ciphers are used, is it encrypted, is it signed, and so forth, and basically reverses the process. They're bound in will be the key that was encrypted with with their own public key. So they use their private key, which only they have, to decrypt it. And so this is so so what this is doing is this assures the sender that nobody but the valid recipient can view the contents. So you're saying, I want to send something, yes, I want it to be encrypted, but whoa, I want to make sure only the person I'm sending it to can decrypt it. Well, given if it's true that the recipient is the only one who has the private key that matches their public key, then you use the public key to encrypt the encryption key so that at the receiving end, the recipient can use their, their public key to decrypt the encryption key that gets the nonce back at their end, and then they use that with a, with the same symmetric cipher specified in the headers to turn it back into compressed text, assuming that it was compressed, and then they decompress that in order to get readable text. And so that's it. I mean, nothing. You know, there's no, no 
other craziness. It's just standards, you know, by the book, this is the way the world has figured out how to do crypto. Now, there are some extra challenges, though, um, in the use of email because email has has traditionally been ASCII. And as you, if you start moving binary data through email, you quickly find out all the horrible things that the that the email channel does. Gateways, for example, sometimes they'll just change the line endings from Unix style to DOS style or DOS style to Unix, meaning that Unix just uses a line feed. DOS uses famously a, a character turn line feed. And so, you know, the idea being, well, you know, we're Unix here, so we're going to, you know, we're going to strip the CRs and just make them LFs. Well, okay, but if this is not readable, if this is encoded somehow, then they've, you've just broken the signature at the, at the very least and probably, you know, caused all kinds of havoc. So, so in the open PGP spec, which is now the sort of the standard specification, as you said, Leo, um, uh, enshrined in RFCs, um, they call it ASCII armor. Um, they take this very seriously. The 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 problems that email gateways present, and so it's it's certainly well known that many of the links on the internet traditionally were seven bits. Um, many people may old timers among us may remember that modems sometimes operated with like you had seven or eight bit of data. And then one or two bits of of, uh, of stop bits, and then sometimes parity. Um, and so, actually, you might even have a channel. Your actual channel wasn't even a byte wide; it was seven bits wide. And so you could only send set the the, the first half of the of the of the two hundred fifty six bit set. And the good news is, text the, the ASCII character set fits all within that 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 first half. Um, there are, you know, the first 32 are all the control characters, and then you've got special characters, uppercase ASCII, or uppercase alpha, lowercase alpha, and then the numerals, and then, you know, tildes and backslashes and, and so forth. So what, they've, what they do in order to, to convert something which is, by, by, by the time PGP is through with it, it is definitely binary. I mean, you've you've taken this. You'll have readable headers. You'll have ASCII headers, but the actual content, the 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 body, can you know that is described by what's inside has been turned into absolute pseudo random noise that is binary. So that 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 cannot safely be moved. I mean, if you were if you were storing it in a file, if you were if you were using it in a file system. Then it do, it can remain that way, or you, if you were uploading it somewhere for someone else over a channel which is inherently binary capable, again you don't need to change it. But if you're emailing it to someone, they're just essentially because email was designed for for text, it will preserve case. We know that, and it will it will normally not mangle printable characters, but unprintable characters, very much like white space of various sorts. Tabs and spaces sometimes get transliterated. Uh, Carriage returns can be removed, as I said. So that's, you just can't let that happen. So 
this ASCII armor approach uses a, a well-known approach known as Radix 64, where we want to, what we're sending is essentially Radix 256. That is, it, they're, they're eight bit bytes of, of binary data. We need to reduce those to six bits because six bits gives us a choice of 64 symbols that map into six bits. And we can easily find 64 symbols that are printable that we know no email gateway will mess with. And, what we, and we use uppercase A through Z, lowercase A through Z, zero through nine, plus and forward slash. And so that gives us that, I just described that 64 symbols. We know the email maintains case, so it's not going to change the case of things. Um, and so what the, the way they, they convert this is sort of clever. Imagine that you take three bytes together. Well, three bytes of eight bits per byte is 24 bits. So you can take that 24 bits and divide, which starts off as three sets of eight, you can subdivide, you can redivide that 24 bits as four sets of six because six times four is 24, just as three times eight is. So now, simply by chopping that 24-bit that string, string into four chunks of six bits, then we take each chunk of six bits and use and use a, a map to look up where the char- uh, which of the sixty four characters we want to translate it to, and that allows us to to take a binary blob which is not safe to email to someone, turn it into text essentially, and that's where I said it it, it increased the size by a third because it's going to take every three bytes and turn that into four characters. So that's a third larger than it starts out, but it can move through email safely at the receive at the receiving end. The process is simply reversed. Sets of sets of four characters are then converted back into three bytes in binary. That that allows PGP to reconstitute the original binary, and then it just reverses the process uh, as I described before at the at the recipient end. So. As as we said, there's flavors of of PGP, Open PGP, GNU PG. Leo, you and I talked last week about Mailvelope, which is a plugin for Chrome and Firefox. Uh, there is a nice Open PGP compliant uh, client for iOS called IPG Mail. Android has a number of apps. Not surprisingly, there's APG, yeah, which is an one. Open PGP yeah. implementation. Still not uh, ideal all- on mobile, unfortunately. No, agreed. There's also Open PGP Manager, and there is even a PGP-based secure messaging solution, an SMS that uses asymmetric in- encryption. Now, stepping back from all of that, there's like the problem that we have with it is my sense is, and I've articulated this before, um, is the fundamental problem that 
the world has, not just PGP, not just us here on the podcast, but the problem that the Internet has is authentication. And it's one of the topics we talk about all the time. That's where YubiKey came from, where, you know, all of our our one-time passwords, the time-based passwords, the, the you know, the multi-factor authentication. I mean, we're talking about authentication all the time because that is the problem. <laughs> we have the technology to establish between two people a an absolutely secure channel. But when the people are remote from each other, there is no way to prevent a man in the middle from bifurcating that agreement of, for example, a secure key by pretending to be the other end to each of the other ends and creating two links with the so-called man in the middle. The only way to prevent that is if we if we mix in authentication because the man in the middle presumably cannot authenticate himself to each of the endpoints as being the people they think they're connecting to. So so this is we no matter what we do, we keep coming back to this problem. Now the 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 novel approach which Phil took because he understood about PKI, the, the standard public key infrastructure. And there is now, in the later versions of PGP, the notion of a hierarchy of keys. You can have a key which is like a certificate authority, which is, other, which is able to sign other keys. And then you can have a key above that. They're, they're called levels, level 0, 1, and 2. You can have a level 2, which is able to create level one keys, which are, which is like, so it's able to create certificate authorities, which are then able to sign other keys. So there is, there is a notion of a, of a hierarchy within the later versions of PGP. Which this is generally of, not used. It's really the web of trust is what, or what. Right. I, I could see in a, maybe in a corporate setting. Yes. Uh, yes. Where, you, where there you would want you know, essentially to run your own certificate authority. Right. You'd use a key able to sign other keys in order to create the keys which your employees would all use. And then they would, they, they would all trust keys signed by that, their, the level, they would trust the level zero keys right. signed by the level one authority that was like a corporate authority. Right. I mean, my, you um, know, what we what we do informally, and I've asked people to do that, is to sign my key, and uh, they ask me to sign their key. You do some verification of of some kind. Uh, in fact, the signing process is interesting because you are asked how much verification you've done. <laughs> yes, in fact, and, and that is that is that that's formalized in the specification, yeah. Leo. Yeah, there's a series of levels of how sure you are that this is the person who the the identity assertion binds to. Your choices are: I will not answer. I have not checked at all. I have done casual checking. I have done very careful checking. And then you can look at people's signatures uh, on my key, for instance. I have twenty or thirty, um, and see how confident they are. Uh, and that signature. I think this is uh, a good system, mainly because it eliminates this Hong Kong post office problem. Yes, yes, exactly. And and uh, that that there, therefore, I mean that that is the problem with 
with the public key infrastructure, the formal PKI that we have, where exactly as you say, there's there is some certificate authority. I mean, and there's there's many problems. There's like you have to trust them. You have to trust what they do. You have to trust that no one is impersonating them and so forth. So as you say, Leo, Leo, this web of trust is essentially a sort of a sort of a self bootstrapping sort of, you know, community agreement. Lots of people have made the assertion that, you know, you are you. And so when someone looks at your key, they go, wow, you know, this seems reasonable. But you can but, see my oh. current key if you you can. By the way, the other thing, and I, I get a lot of people uh, sending me encrypted email um, saying, "Can you read this? And is it working? And will you sign it and send it back, et cetera, et cetera?" And I'm certainly open to doing that. My key is public, as it should be, on my webpage, leoville.com. Um, but one thing I find people often forget to do, and all of these tools will let you do this, is upload your key to the key server. It's a easy. You can attach it to an email. But when you create a key, there's always a command, send key to server, public key to server, that is safe, in fact, encouraged. That's how the signature, other people can sign it, and it's how I can get it. So if somebody sends me an email and I want to see if I can talk to them securely, I can check for their key on the public server, add it to my keychain. I have over almost 100 keys now from people who've sent me email in the last few weeks, and uh, I'm, I'm continue to add names uh, to that because I think we all ought to use it. And of course, every email we're encrypting is completely stupid and trivial. That's not the point. <laughs> In this case, it's to use this system so that we have it. So, yeah. So where I, I guess where I come back to is I wanted to, I wanted to absolutely give our listeners every confidence that PGP in all of its various flavors. Now, that's, I mean, understanding that, as I said last week, a mobile platform is inherently a little scary. It's, it's, yeah. It's, because it's, it's mobile. I, we yeah. were talking about Bitcoins and keeping your whole right. Bitcoin fortune on your phone. It's that's, eh, I don't know. I mean, you know, mobile, mobile platforms are, they're just exposed to more danger. So, and we know that exposure is unfortunately a, a concern for security because. We don't have perfect security. Um, so subject to implementation mistakes, the, te- the fundamentals of PGP are as good as any known. I mean, it is serious. It's been seriously vetted. It's mature. It's old. Real security people have looked at it and said, you know, this works. And it has – there has been – versioning evolution over time subtle small and sometimes just theoretical mistakes in in the definition have been found have been fixed and eliminated and pgp moves forward you know in 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 versioning so you know it's 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 everything that's there is absolutely solid so if somebody has a use for it I would endorse it without reservation. Um, Let me just show you, uh, for those who are curious, this is what you see on encrypted email that has not been encrypted. And the important point here is that the metadata, the to and from information and the subject date and time, uh, along with all the other headers, are visible. But the message itself is just, you know, gobbledygook. Right. That base 64 gobbledygook that you were talking about. 
All in Alaska. Right. Yeah. So anyway, so that that's really where I stand. Is it's the 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 technology is solid. The spec exists. It's been a, because it's been around for so long. It's it's cross platform. It's it's you know available with. Uh, I, uh, a friend of mine was saying that he looked at uh, iMail, and there's uh, it's very easy to add PGP technology uh, to the to the Mac platform. Yeah, this as, is as so part- simple. GPG Mail uh, is the easiest tool ever, and uh, there's GPG for Win as well that is very easy for Windows. It's the it's tougher on uh, on iOS and Android, unfortunately. Yeah. So. So I guess, you know, where I could, you know, I've asked myself, okay, well, it, it, you know, probably most of us are not using it. No. And like, why? And it's like, well, okay, I'm, I do have instances where I'm, I'm feeling self-conscious about my mail going in the clear. And so I have a couple of very close friends who I communicate with and I've, I'm, I'm sure that sometimes I'm writing things and I find myself thinking, "Huh, what if this is going to trip any, you know, false positives because I'm I'm writing what I am." Um, so, so there, if I had my friend set up with PGP and I were, then, you know, I could be corresponding with absolute comfort, knowing that 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 wasn't happening, that there was there was absolutely no leakage of my mail. Now, it is the case, as we discussed previously, that the fact of my communicating is public, but that's a consequence of email. We were talking about, you know, the the, the metadata headers that route the mail from from sender to recipient. Well, that has to be visible. So the fact that I'm communicating, of course, with my with my couple of my friends, that's I'm doing that all the time. Who cares? So it's important to remember that, that that isn't being protected. And we will be talking about initially about BitMessage because so many people who are listening want to know the details of BitMessage. Uh, but I'm absolutely certain that with before long, we're going to start seeing some solutions uh, surface just because I think, unfortunately, the climate has created a demand, yep. and we've got all the technology we meet we need yeah, to fulfill exists. that demand. In yes. fact, uh, you know, in the early days of PGP, the government was very, very nervous about it for ba- forbade its export and so forth uh, because yep. they knew this is strong encryption. And uh, well, and Phil Phil famously printed the source code on a on, on pages <laughs> of a book that the MIT Press published <laughs> because the First Amendment protects the export of books there you go and so he just thumbed his nose it leaked out and and it's everywhere and they gave up on those uh, restrictions the other thing i would say is don't wait until it's just private stuff use it all the time otherwise (laughs) it'll never get critical mass well and when you use it it's like saying hey by the way this is the one you want to try to decrypt well right (laughs) exactly (laughs) the the answer is not to only encrypt stuff that's private but to encrypt everything and that's what I, you know, I do. If I have your key, you will only get encrypted mail from me. The other thing that you didn't touch on but is also important, and one of the reasons I started using 
uh, PGP 16 years ago, is it has as one of its features the ability to sign mail to verify yes. its identity. And uh, because people from time to time impersonate me and so forth, I've used that for a long time. It confuses the hell out of people when they see this signature. But uh, if you have PGP running, you can verify this came from Leo. Otherwise, as you well know, it's very easy to spoof email. Yeah. So uh, that was it. That was the main reason I started using it. Is merely, and it might be a good reason for everybody to use it. Just to, uh, assert this is authenticated. This is me. There's also a certificate system, S Mime, which I suppose one day we should do a story on, a show on as well. Yep. Because that's uh, that's another way. A lot of it's maybe easier to use. That's well, yeah. That that is the. Um, I know that many clients have that built in yeah. as opposed to yeah. needing it added on. Um, and it is a traditional PKI style, right. you know, public key infrastructure uh, with a uh, signed certificate from VeriSign or exactly with a line. Oh, and I, all, I I did forget to mention that PGP now also supports expirations on keys, so that you can get yes. a time limited key that will, you know, like your your corporation may issue it to you just, just as again for, because it's good right. to. You know, to keep them fresh. If you look at my keys, only use the most recent one, folks, because I uh, didn't set a time limit on most of my keys. I, there's many since 1997. You can also now, and this is really good, this is new, create a, re a revocation key. Yep. You can revoke. So uh, that's what I would suggest is perhaps not set an expiration date, but do make sure you get and save in LastPass or somewhere a revocation key. Uh, that way you can, from time to time, revoke old keys. Because all my keys are up in the key server, and I do I do occasionally get email from people that it's encrypted with an older key that I no longer have access to. So use <laughs> use the most recent key, or just get it from my webpage leoville.com. And if you've got an old yeah, key I, for me, get a new one, you update know, it. Pushing back from a minute, I know we got to go, but no, no. Um, if we only had a solution for authentication, and well, and I guess don't what. The, the, all the strong rumors are going forward that it's September 10th, Apple's going to announce a new iPhone with this authentic fingerprint reader built into it. Um, and this is more than rumor, in my opinion. I've heard it now from sources that are uh, unimpeachable. So that's going to be uh, widely available is a strong authentic. we hope, a strong authentication system built into the phone. Wow. Of half as, you know, half the people who use smartphones use iPhones. So that could change things. Yeah. That could change things. I'd like to see Android, though, do that as well. I'm, I, you know, Apple's a little bit. Yeah, I agree. It has got to be, it's got to be universal. It's got to be, be something yeah. for, for it to work. Everybody needs it. Yeah. Hey, Steve. Oh, yeah. Great show, as always. Maybe one of the most important you've done. I have a feeling this will be off downloaded. Encourage people to get a copy of it and share it with your friends. Steve has transcriptions, text transcriptions by a human, so they're they're very good uh, on his website, as well as 16 kilobit audio for people who really have limited limited bandwidth. That's grc.com. While you're there, get Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, getting better all the time, and uh, lots of other freebies there. It's worth browsing around. If you like Steve, if you like this show, visit grc.com. You'll find plenty uh, to uh, to enjoy there. And, of course, you can follow him on Twitter at SGGRC. Uh, we also have high-quality audio and video of the show available for download on our site, twit.tv slash SN. Or you can watch us live. Some people do. They want the latest. 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern time on Wednesdays. That's uh, 1800 UTC on twit.tv. Please stop by. We'd love it if you watch live. And uh, if you can't, 
you can always get a version from us or Steve or subscribe in your favorite podcatcher and you'll, you'll get and, it downloaded. And again, a, a, a strong urge to go see Triangulation Thank episode you. 115, Leo and Thank Esther you. Dyson together. It was, really it was just really delightful. Today, we're going to interview uh, Phil Rosedale, who founded Linden Labs, the creators of Second Life. That's going to be, he's a very interesting person. You know, Steve, I kind of want to close with this. We talk a lot about engineering, computation, and so forth. There's a video going viral. You know, I sent my son off, Henry, to uh, University of Colorado Boulder this morning. (laughs) His freshman year in college, and all over the country, kids are going back to school. This is a video uh, that was posted on YouTube of... uh, a speech given by an engineering senior engineering student to the incoming freshman at Georgia Tech, one of our great schools. And I think it's a great, inspiring way to end security now. Steve, cool. thanks Thank for the you. show. We'll see you next week on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. We chose Georgia Tech because we want to do the impossible. And this school is equipped with the resources and faculty to help us do just that. And so, in the words of Sir Isaac Newton, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Georgia Tech is proud of its many traditions, but the one I find most exciting is our tradition of excellence. Our mission as students is not to follow in the footsteps of the astronauts, Nobel Prize laureates, and president who graduated before us, but to exceed their footsteps, crush the shoulders of the giants upon whom we stand. We here are all such innovative people, so I am telling you, if you want to change the world, you're at Georgia Tech. You can do that. If you want to build the Iron Man suit, you're at Georgia Tech. You can do that. If you want to play theme music during your convocation speech like a badass, we're at Georgia Tech. We can do that. I am doing that. (laughs) (laughs) And that would be true of MIT, Cal Poly, and... Rensselaer and all the great technology schools in this country. Uh, if you're going to college right now, the world is yours to change. We need a lot of help. Yep. Yep. Do it. Nice. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, buddy. Security.